so fitting to be studying Luke's gospel, even as we come to communion this morning. We've been in Luke chapter 4, and I wanted to stay in this text because of the temptations of Christ that we are studying, and we find ourselves in these wonderful uh, sections of Luke's gospel. I, I know it won't surprise you that as I was studying this week, imagining that I might get through these two temptations left in this communion service, then it's not a surprise to you that I'm admitting I will not get through both of them. Uh, I just absolutely became compelled and riveted by this second temptation that Satan throws at our Lord. And in, in response to these temptations that Satan levels at Christ, the Old Testament passages that he quotes from are very familiar territory to the people of God. And of course, Israel was given all kinds of opportunities to remember some rather tragic periods in its history. In fact, the sections of Scripture from which Jesus quotes will serve Israel um, an excruciating reminder, a painful reminder of a time in their past where They were not faithful, a critical time in their past. And so it will be a comfort that God was faithful, but it's a reminder, a painful, excruciating reminder that they themselves were not faithful to this wonderful God who had rescued them. So as Luke gives the account of Jesus' temptation, what Jesus is doing here is quoting from that period of Israel's history. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 6 through 8, And those chapters are primary chapters that were a reminder, a painful reminder to Israel to live for Yahweh and not yourself, to listen to the words of Yahweh and not trust your own wisdom, to worship only Yahweh and not other gods, and to never test Yahweh. Don't ever put him to the test with your stubbornness. So these quotes are from a section of Scripture very familiar to Israel, and they would have been, unfortunately for them, a tragic part of their history. A part of their history that spoke of their unfaithful heart, even though God himself had been utterly faithful. Even though he had redeemed them from the godless culture and bondage that they experienced in Egypt, even so they were unfaithful. And it would bring to images, bring to their mind certain images about their exodus. You remember all of this goes back to the great uh, foreshadowing of the plan of redemption and Christ on the cross when he purchases his people back. All of the exodus imagery refers in an early way to the great themes of redemption. And so as Israel hears of Jesus' temptation, as the Jews and Gentiles read of this account in Luke's gospel and the other gospels, there is this bringing to mind of Exodus 16 and 17 particularly. They had been brought out of Egypt, rescued from their enemy. And God took them into the wilderness to test their heart, as we saw last time. And in testing their heart, sadly, they began to grumble. You can read it for yourself at some point. In chapter 16 and 17 of Exodus, they were given water by God and they grumbled. They were given food by God, two different kinds, and they grumbled. And God took them into the wilderness to not only clean out the unbelievers from the group, but to refine the hearts of those who truly did love him. 
you remember in that account, they were in the wilderness for 40 years. It's interesting, the parallels that are drawn here when Jesus is tempted for 40 days. They were taken into a wilderness to be tested. Jesus is taken out by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tested. All of these themes draw us back to Israel's coming out of bondage and the great faithfulness of their God and their own unfaithfulness. In fact, you know what they said in that grumbling time? Listen, life was better when we were in bondage under our enemy because at least we had the security of an earthly empire and while it may have been prison food, it was food every day. And that was much better, they said, than the bare promise of God. Just a raw promise to believe God every day, to not know where our meal is going to come from, to just sort of leave ourselves wide open to a God we can't see, touch. Look, there are earthly kingdoms that provide security. I want those. That's what they said. It's amazing. The son of Israel, Israel was God's son and God rescued them out of Egypt as a son. It was the son upon whom he'd set his love, this nation whom he called his own son, and he rescued and pulled them out. And they refused to trust his righteous character. They refused to settle on his righteous love. And so here now, fast forward to this account where for 40 days in the wilderness, the son of God, Jesus himself, the Messiah, the beloved one, is in stark contrast to the son of old who actually grumbled against him, didn't trust him. So not only is Jesus the second Adam, we saw that connection in the genealogy, which Luke provides for us in chapter 3, verse 38, the son of God, son of Adam, son of God. Not only is Jesus connected with humanity all the way back to the first Adam, but he's also the son of God, the son of man, the Messiah, Israel's Messiah. And, And for sure, he will not trust in human promises. He will trust only in God's promises. He refuses to exalt the creature above the creator as Israel of old had done. He refuses to rage against God's sovereign purposes as his son Israel had done. Luke knows then that every saved Jew who reads this account, it would remind them of the heartache of of the stubborn self-reliance that was in their people and it will also remind them of the sweet comfort that God is faithful. And every Gentile that read it, it would be the most awe-inspiring display of mercy and love as God, in dealing with his people, sent the gospel to pagan nations like Egypt with the saving gospel of Christ. Last time we saw that first temptation was all about God's word versus man's word. It was all about the wisdom of God to be trusted or man's wisdom. Verse 3, the devil said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. What was the issue here? Hey, if you are the son of God, and if God himself said you're his beloved son, then prove it, prove it to yourself by doing what men do when they're deprived of their needs. Go after it, grab it. Do what is your right as a man and use your special sonship to create food, satisfy your longings whenever and however they arise. That was the issue. And Jesus trusted in his father, verse four, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And he quotes Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three. That 
it was in that great section, you remember, where he said, my, my words are life to you, Moses would later say. You're to trust the words of God, the wisdom of God, the promises of God, not your own human consideration of things. This second enticement, just as we prepare our hearts for our time of communion, this is about man's versus God's glory. This is about the glory of man, self-reliance, self-exaltation versus the glory of God. Notice verse 5. And he, that is the devil, led Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it's been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Stop right there. Wow. This is... Just picking it apart here for a moment is really stunning. Matthew, by the way, puts this temptation in the third spot. Luke puts it here in the second spot of the three final sort of crescendo temptations against Jesus. There's really nothing in the text that indicates why, except we might uh, speculate a little bit. Matthew, you remember, his purpose is to talk about Jesus' right as the king, the king of kings, his right to sort of rule and he has the title deed to the earth. He, he does own it all. He, he has a right to all of it. And so it may, may very well be that Matthew had placed this one at the end, sort of as the pinnacle uh, uh, in Matthew's mind of how Jesus uh, refused to take an earthly kingdom in favor of a, a heavenly one. But Luke, I think, may have put it here in the second place because of the context of the temptations. First, you have Jesus being tempted about the word and promise of God in the wilderness when he's famished. Then you have him being taken, as Matthew says, to a high mountain and shown the kingdoms of the world, as Luke says here, all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. So then you have sort of the, the mountain out of, out of the desert lower parts and famished into the mountain areas. And then lastly, maybe is why Luke brought it down to the temple temptation, right to the heart of Jerusalem itself. That could be. It's all speculation, but it's interesting that they switched the order. What's the point of this temptation? The ultimate point or core issue in this temptation, though we'll explore it in a moment just a little bit further, the issue here is Satan is saying to Jesus, I want you to refuse the joy set before you, refuse the glory that God has promised you, and settle for what you can have right now in earthly glory. You have a right to it. This is an appeal to worship the creature rather than the creator. This is an appeal to worship earthly things rather than God's glory. Notice what you have here is earthly glory in living color. Verse 5 and he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. This is fascinating. Matthew 4, 8 says it took him, took him to a high mountain and showed him the kingdoms of the world and their glory. So this is not a mere mental excursion. Some, some commentaries say, oh, this is just something in his mind, just some vision. The text doesn't say that. All the information in the text is very literal. The verbal uh, ideas here, the verbs, indicate a very real showing and a very real leading 
It's not some projection of thoughts onto Jesus' mind. The verb here means he literally showed it to him before his eyes. So you can't make it into something it's not. You know, the only reason people try to speculate on that is because they say, oh, well, come on. How could he show him the whole kingdom of the world, literally, from one high mountain? I mean, come on. You're right. From a human perspective, yeah. But this is a supernatural being we're talking about. And so we don't know how they operate. We just know it says that he did that. And he showed it to him literally in one instant. In one instant. So the point that's being made here is Satan does have some sort of vice rulership over the kingdoms of the world. And with his supernatural powers, he's somehow able to manipulate its boundaries for, for this moment. And he's able to, listen, gather the glory of the kingdoms. What does that mean? That means in a flash, he heaped and piled upon this image that he gave to Jesus. He put in front of Jesus' eyes all the power, all the wealth, all the earthly splendor of these these puppet kingdoms of the earth. All of them. And And he thrust it in front of Jesus in a flash. And he did it right when Jesus was most vulnerable to doing just about anything for immediate relief, immediate self-gratification, and most importantly, earthly vindication. That's the issue. Get earthly vindication, Jesus. You are the Son of God. Show the earth that you are most worthy. Show them. You're the most worthy ruler. You created this planet. Show them. Now, sometimes we, we read that and we think, well, surely Satan doesn't own the kingdoms of the earth. Well, verse 6, notice he says, for it has been handed over to me. So in one sense, there is some truth to what he says because as John's gospel indicates in chapter, four, uh, chapter 12, chapter 14, and chapter 16, Jesus calls the devil the ruler of this world three different times. In 1 John 5, verse 19, John would later say in his epistle there, the power of the world lies in the power of the evil one. So the whole entire kingdoms of the earth, as they are now, have been given sort of a vice regency under Satan's rulership. He is called the prince, Ephesians 2, 2, prince of the power of the air, the world system. So in one sense, his claim here is true in that he has been allowed a a temporary delegated dominion over the world. But it's also true, notice what he says, verse 6, it has been handed over to me and I give it to whomever I wish. That's a lie. That's a bald-faced lie. And it's got this veneer of truth on it. Oh, I have the power. It's a delegated dominion. It was allowed by God, who is sovereign, you can't give it to whomever you want to. That's a lie. But we're not surprised. Satan is a usurper. And he has lied and murdered his way to the limited and temporary rule he's allowed to have. His claim is false. He has no real power or authority to offer Jesus what he's tempting him with. So he shows him earthly glory and living color, but here's the heart of this temptation. He offers him earthly glory on one condition. 
Here it is, verse 7. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Literally, bow down. Before me, in your English translation, means bow down. And that's why Matthew's parallel text in Matthew 4, verse 9, says, if you fall down and worship me. This is homage. This is proclaim me to be the most worthy. Why is this a devastating offer? Why is this seriously enticing to Jesus? Well, sometimes you might imagine that Jesus could easily dismiss this because he already knows it's a sham kingdom. He already knows it's a facade what Satan is offering. It's a temporary rulership, a sham rulership over a a temporary kingdom. He already knows that. So how can this be anything serious? Well, Satan is basically saying, look, you can easily acquire right now, right this moment, all the power, all the wealth, all the creaturely sovereignty of earthly kingdoms and earthly glory, just this simple gesture of humble recognition of my splendor and glory. But now when you get back, you step back and you look at the circumstances Jesus is in, this is why this becomes a very pointed temptation. Here's where things stand so far. Jesus physically, in his humanity, is literally dehydrated. He's famished. He's alone. He's getting relentlessly pounded with temptations to sin, all of which he's withstood so far. And here, what's ahead of him is even more devastating. What's ahead of Jesus is his family will ultimately reject him. So if he doesn't get relief now and become the earthly monarch that he has a right to become and and take the earthly glory of the earthly kingdoms right now, his family is going to reject him. His own chosen and beloved people will hate and condemn him. Furthermore, his dearest friends, whom he at this point, at that point will have discipled and sacrificially loved and cared for, they're all going to abandon him and leave him alone. And maybe you haven't thought about this, but think about this. So far, this is the beginning of his ministry, but up to this point in his cognitive mind as the Son of God, and from here all the way till he meets his heavenly Father in glory, his pure mind and heart is being offended and bombarded with the perversion of the culture all around him. It's happening all day, every day. And you think about this, if he doesn't say yes to Satan, he will rule no one in his earthly ministry. He will never be able to make a defense in his earthly ministry. He will never even for a moment begin to have any real justice. He will never be humanly vindicated when it matters most. That just blows my mind. When human dignity is on the line and personal safety is on the line and your future reputation is on the line, in those moments, he'll never have a moment of human vindication. There he was hanging on the cross and they wagged their tongues at him. There the guards were blindfolding him and smacking him around, yanking out his beard, putting the crown of thorns on him, lashing him. There was Pilate saying, don't you know I have the power to go thumbs down on you? Not a moment's human vindication. For the most part, he remained silent. 
He certainly remained silent whenever he could have vindicated himself and we would have wanted him to vindicate himself. He remained silent. The only thing he said to Pilate was, you wouldn't have any power over me if it wouldn't have been given to you from above. And he will, if he doesn't say yes to Satan here, he will be unjustly condemned and slandered and tortured. He will be hated without a cause. He will be humiliated and ultimately murdered. And if that weren't enough, while he is being killed, the greatest apex, both profound and unfathomable and humanly impossible to understand experience that ever happened in the history of God's universe It's going to happen if he doesn't say yes to Satan. Jesus Christ is going to feel the incalculable, crushing weight of every sin ever committed by those whom he is saving. And he will be separated from the love and fellowship of his Father. So there's the temptation right there. Jesus You can have everything you deserve as the Messiah. Right now, you can have your rightful earthly glory in this moment. And in that moment, if you take it, you can have 10,000 servants of the earthly kingdoms at your instant call. Earthly rulers will bow to your splendor. Your name will go forth as the supreme monarch of the entire world. And you can avoid the inevitable humiliation that's coming. There will be no separation from your rightful glory, no sin-bearing And it can all be yours right now. All you have to do in this moment is bow down and say, just for a moment, while you bow, that I am most worthy. Isn't that exactly what happens when Satan tests God's people today? take, Take your reputation. Take your dignity back. Take your human earthly glory. Take a little slice of that achievement. Glory in this, glory in that. Oh, thank God, you earned it. You can have it. He doesn't mind giving you a little bit of that. After all, you're American. It's wicked. That's what he does. And that's puny stuff when we're covered by the grace of Christ in the moment. Here's the Son of God, the high priest himself, for us on our behalf, facing the test to grab relief and reputation and renown and resplendence. Do it now. Get it. This is one little thing. Verse 8. This is your Savior. This is my Savior. Verse 8. Jesus answered him, It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Wow. Deuteronomy 6.13. You shall fear the Lord your God and you shall worship Him and swear by His name. There's no higher character, no higher glory. It was reiterated by Moses in Deuteronomy 10.20, you shall fear the Lord your God. And this is what Moses said later, you shall fear him and serve him and cling to him. There's that imagery of Psalm 91 coming under his wing. Cling to him. 
Exodus 20, verses 3 to 5, You shall have no other gods beside me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I love you and I want you to live, but you must worship only me. Some people today in their pagan folly will say, why does God have to be so arrogant and selfish that he gets all the the glory? Look, he is glory. He is pure righteousness. His creation, if it doesn't worship him, dies. This isn't, you know, sort of some contest to find out whose universe can survive the longest. You didn't ask to be born. You were born out of the glorious provision of God. And then because you were born corrupt, you offend him every breath you take. You know what he does? He sends his precious son who's willing to save. Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, you teach it to your kids. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Jesus quoted that in Luke chapter 10, verse 27. But man is always going after earthly glory. It's very interesting. John 5, 44. Here's what Jesus said, and it's recorded in that great text as Jesus faced off with the Pharisees. He said, how can you men believe when you receive glory from one another and you don't seek the glory that's from the one and only God? Man, you love to puff yourselves up with all things human. Satan was saying, man, if there's anybody that should be puffed up with all things human, Jesus, it should be you. You're the son of God. You have a right here. Even the Old Testament says the Messiah will reign and take possession and rule the earth. Take it now. Right now. Man, that was You know what Jesus said? I refuse to seek earthly glory for mankind's pleasure. Man, what a powerful high priest. He fought for it. Turn to Hebrews 4 for a second. Just just as we come to the Lord's table, we've been in Hebrews 2 and 4 again and again, but look at the words again. Just remind yourself. Hebrews 4, verse 14. I love this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, what does that mean? That means he brought his righteous payment and life before the throne of a holy God at the bar of divine justice. And he didn't just present it and have it rejected. He presented it and passed through with, as we say, flying colors, but in this sense, flying righteousness. He passed through. He made it. Jesus, the Son of God. And since he is that great high priest, then let us hold fast our confession. What confession? That he indeed is the Son. He indeed is our righteousness. He indeed is the glory alone. He indeed is the worthy one. 
say, what practical benefit does it give me? Verse 15, for we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Don't ever say when you need, when you would like your dignity back or you would like some human relief or you'd like just a little thank, thankfulness and, and in human achievement, you'd like to glory at least a little bit in all the things that you are. And God doesn't give it to you. He keeps taking it from you. He keeps eliminating it. Why? Because he's weaning you from yourself. In that moment, don't ever say that you have a high priest who cannot understand that. Because there he was, presented with a temptation so magnificently horrific and profound and painful. And for you, he fought. He fought that human tendency to get relief, to exalt self. Man, he fought it. And he fought it so that when you go to him today, fighting a temptation that keeps plaguing you, you can run to him and know he knows your frame. He knows it. One who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's why Paul will say in Romans 5, 2, we make much of the hope of the glory of God. It's the glory of God I'm after, not mine. Romans 8, verse 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time, Paul said, they're not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Jesus knew that right in this moment. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. Jesus knew that. 1 Timothy 1.17, the Bible says that unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory. That's the heart of the believer. And he didn't call you through our gospel to gain human glory. 2 Thessalonians 2.14, he called you through our gospel to gain the glory of Christ, the glory of our Lord Jesus. What an enticement. What a savior. He did that for us. Right there in the garden, he upheld the word of God and said to Satan, it is written. There's no glory but God's. I will not, for my own relief, my own temporary achievement and exaltation, grab something that God himself gives and God alone in his timing gives. you bow with me for a word of prayer? Lord, as we come around your table, we're already just astonished. What a horrific temptation. We never have the right to steal glory. Ours is always illegitimate usurper type stuff but you had a right to earthly glory you created the earth you have a right to rule 
you have a right to expect all creatures to bow down to you, the creator of the universe. And in that moment, it must have been so painful. It must have have been such a confusing moment when it was first shown to you in all of its glory and majesty, those earthly splendors. And yet you had us in mind. You had eternal glory, the Father's glory in mind. Even though you had yet to face all that you knew you came to face. We would be overwhelmed if you told us all the things we were going to face between now and meeting you. Our wick would be, would be crushed and snuffed out. We, we couldn't survive it. And so we need your grace to know the depths of this moment that you did for us what we now in the power of the Spirit can do, and that is to resist human glory, to love your glory, to to rejoice in what you have promised, to want to see you exalted when we resist temptation, to never fear or cower under the world's evil or life's troubles to bring it to you our faithful high priest where you went to the cross and you proved by both your death and resurrection that that what you did here in this temptation was a true work of your pure heart and your love for your people that went all the way to the cross So, Lord, we remember. We're sorry that we don't draw near with confidence to our faithful high priest as we should. We do now, in this hour, draw near to you. We thank you for the cleansing work and resurrection power of Christ that lives within us. As we remember your death, know, O God, that we are your people. We love your name. And we do bow the knee before your rightful glory and we see how you defeated Satan. And we want to resist temptation like that for your honor, not our own. Though you allow us to be slayed, help us by your grace yet to trust you.